Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Some say that money makes the world go around, and others say that it's the root of all evil. But mostly, we're ignorant about both money, its history, and its effects on most aspects of our lives. Fortunately, Howard Switzer, today's Spirit in Action guest, has studied up and can give us a good start on understanding money. Howard has been boning up on money and monetary reform intensively since 2009, participating with the Alliance for Just Money and the American Monetary Institute. His non-monetary policy work has included decades as an eco-architect, and he spent years as part of the founding generation of The Farm, the renowned intentional community near Summertown, Tennessee. Howard Switzer joins us today via the internet from Linden, Tennessee. Howard, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here. It was awesome that you came all the way up here to Eau Claire, Wisconsin for the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival. Have you been going to other states, other locales to do your presentation on monetary reform? Yes, on occasion, when I'm asked. (laughs) And how is it that the organizers for the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival knew to connect with you? Well, Mary Sanders had joined up with a group of us monetary reformers when we met her at the Democracy Convention in Minneapolis last summer. She asked me if I would come back up to Wisconsin and do my presentation, and I said I would, and so she uh, called soon after telling me about the Grassroots Festival. My understanding is that your interest in monetary reform only dates back to 2009 or so, although your interest and work in eco-architecture and other environmental-related work dates back a few decades. I'm wondering about the roots of all of this work. Did it all grow out of your time living as part of the farm, the kind of hippie commune in Lewis County, Tennessee? Yeah, we were, um, you know, a collective community and we had not much money, and so we had to figure out ways to build that didn't cost much money. Most of the things that we did were with salvaged materials, but we soon learned about pre-industrial construction, and uh, so we were trying some of that. And, of course, bales we could get a hold of from local farmers easy enough to build structures with that. There may be some listeners who haven't learned about straw bale construction and why you do it, but they can probably imagine one consequence at least, because doesn't it make your walls extremely thick? It makes them immensely thick, and of course, that's some of what people like about them is that old-world look of real thick walls. A lot of the walls in old-world architecture were real thick because they were made out of mud, and so very thick walls on uh, cottages and things. So that was part of it, but also that straw is a good insulator, especially tied up in a bale. So we would get our 30 walls stacking up bales. Your business is still called, I think, Earth and Straw Design. How much do you still do straw bale design, and how much has moved on to other ways of building? Well, lately I haven't done. I was just recently asked to do a design for a village that would be an earthen village, but it was just for a concept for a book that a friend of mine's writing. But the thing about Earth and Straw is it is the traditional building method for humans, pretty much everywhere in the world. 
And of course, they learned it from the birds. Is there anything in the straw bale construction process that is done differently now from what was done, you know, 100, 200 years ago? Is there some technological change in the process? Straw bale is a technological innovation. As the baler wasn't invented until 1883, but by 1985, out in the Sand Hills in Nebraska, people started building buildings with bales. And it was because there was not a lot of wood available out in that region. And so they stacked the bales up as walls. Then they only had to use the wood for the roof. And then they plastered it on the inside and out. You've got R30 walls. So they did very good for uh, living out there in the high plains. But today, mostly, we integrate straw bales into post and beam frames to avoid the irregular settling that happens between where you might have a door or window with a rigid frame and a section of wall where there was none. And so you get a little bit of irregular settling under a roof load. And to avoid that, we would just do a post and beam frame. And another earthy technique is cob construction, where it's straw mixed in with mud or clay. Is that at all comparable? Yes, the cob is a mixture of mud. Now, that is a very old building technique. That goes back to prehistory, where humans built with earth and straw. And or earth and grasses, because then using mud, your choices are vastly expanded on what you can use for the reinforcing fiber in your mud. I think that's the kind of construction I saw in Africa, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and which I've visited several times over the past 30 years, where they'd mix mud with some other things. So cob construction is way old, whereas straw bale is maybe 130 years old. Is there any difference, any enhancement of straw bale construction of late 1800s as it's been practiced over the past 30 years? Pretty much. Pretty much the same, yeah. It's... uh stacking bales. And that's how we uh, basically learned was uh, studying those older buildings. So were many or any of the buildings at the farm where you were living communally and very close to the land through the 1970s and forward, were a lot of those buildings constructed using this technique, straw bale and or cob? Most of the buildings there are built with salvage materials that we uh, did salvaging various buildings. The school is even built with mostly salvage materials. And straw bale, we didn't start learning about straw bale until very late. So there's only a couple of or three houses of straw bale there. Might be more now. I'm not sure. I haven't heard. And there's also been a cob building that they're building called the Dragon Inn, which was kind of a meeting space. And you explored all of this and taught it to many people at the Eco Village Training Center at Summertown, Tennessee, which is the famous The Farm community that was founded back in 1971. And I actually visited there back in 2001 as I was checking out a number of eco-villages with the idea that I might want to settle at one of them. So I did a bit of an overview of intentional communities with eco-focus and visited the farm as part of my exploration. But there were and are a lot of them to choose from. Uh Uh-huh. I have a friend, uh, Harvey, who does the uh, Fellowship of uh, Intentional Communities. I think they do a catalog every year of the intentional communities all across the nation. As opposed to the mass of us who live in unintentional communities, if at all. Right. So again, the reason I met you at the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival is because you were doing a breakout session, a workshop, and it was called The Money Story, How We Got There 
which explains some major history and concepts that can revolutionize our thinking about and action about the financial mess that this world is. Shall we walk through at least some of the major pieces of that presentation, essentially the fruits of your intensive study of the topic since 2009 when you got involved in this? Yeah. Money, of course, is an important exchange medium for us, and it is based in law. And there's been a lot of confusion about money over the years, but the science, monetary science, was pretty much figured out by ancient Greeks. And of course, it was really just a rebirth of what indigenous cultures had done as well for an exchange medium, although they didn't have a lot of trade going on. The origins of money comes out of the indigenous cultures who needed something, who developed something to pay debts. They need a payment system. And of course, the debts were probably things like marriages or accidentally hurting somebody or offending somebody and feeling like they owed them something. And so they developed a payment system for that. The Yaplanders had an interesting one where they had uh, heavy stone wheels that were carved out of stone. They were not a mobile exchange medium except on rare occasions, and that was transferred to another family. But in modern times, when when civilization began in the Mesopotamia, and monoculture farming and deforestation started happening, and a lot of conflict among various groups, and gradually powerful city-states formed, they had developed issuing money. And originally, it was issuing what they called ostracas, which was just a receipt for grain. And that was used as an exchange medium in society. They had so many sacks of grain. And of course, the grain rots, so that exchange medium had a date on it. And so it gradually lost value over time, along with the grain. But gradually, the kings figured out that if they did away with that and just issued the money and made the farmers buy their grain with the money that they issued them at cost, at a interest rate, they would charge for the money. In other words, they were selling the money. <laughs> and that is what we call usury, because that was the abuse of monetary authority for personal gain. But they were able to amass great wealth in that way and in debt the people that way. And so they gained great power and control over large masses of people. Every once in a while, of course, everybody being in debt to them, gradually everybody was in so much debt that that economy couldn't move. They couldn't do anything. Farmers couldn't afford to buy their grain. And so the kings would call for a jubilee about every 50 years and forgive everybody's debt just so they could start over again issuing money as debt. So that is a system that's been going on for a very long time. And money today, a lot of people don't realize this, but all money today is issued as debt, just like it was then. But through the banking system, the global banking system, every nation has a central bank. Most of those central banks are partially privately owned. A few of them are state-owned, like uh, the Bank of England now was nationalized in 1946, and there's some others. But the United States has a private central bank known as the Fed. Now, it has a quasi-government name, but all the employees and everything, they're all paid by the market operations of the Fed, which is controlled by large private banks in their region. There's 12 Federal Reserve banks the New York Fed being the main one, they set monetary policy. 
and make a lot of money <laughs> off of that. And uh, they can create money to lend to the government. There's a lot of wonderful history about money that I recommend a book by Stephen Zarlinga, who was the founder of the American Monetary Institute. And the book is called The Lost Science of Money. It is a summary of the history of money, but there are some notable historians who did that. One of them is Alexander Del Mar, who was the congressional librarian for a number of years. And he wrote a history of money that was very detailed and in-depth. But Stephen had traveled the world as a, um, well, he was a gold dealer for a while. When he got into studying money, he didn't know about money either very well. And that's why he was trying to figure it out. So before we go further into the detail of this, I think it's important to step back and talk about how monetary reform is related to healing or improving the world. Do you think you could put this into a concise statement, how the understanding of and facing the history and actuality of money can help to make our world better? Well, right now, we have an economy that's destroying our planet. And it just does so because it's an extractive economy and extracts massive amount of resources and wastes them at massive levels and pollutes at massive levels because it's a system that's built on usury and there are psychological consequences to usury, which the philosophers uh, all railed about and the religions all banned because of that. So today we can see the results of hundreds of years of usury on the planet and on society. And so what we're saying is that there have been a few instances where money was taken away from the private interests and given to the public interests. When that happened, prosperity for the working people came into being, and there was a tremendous amount of benefit in publicly issued money for public projects. There is a numerous examples that I could give, but Greenbacks is one of those in the United States when the Civil War came along, but even further back, the Continental that was issued by the first Congress of the United States, the uh, Confederation, they had issued public money because they were going to war against the international bankers who were headquartered in London at the time. The point was they were wanting, supposedly, to win the right to issue their own money because the colonies had become a laboratory for monetary science because England wouldn't let the colonists have money. And so when they did get any money, it always went right back to England through the merchants. So the colonies you tried all kinds of things. The tobacco they used for a while, they even used wampum for a while. Different states trying different things. Finally, Massachusetts issued some bills of credit from their government, and those took off because they were so convenient as money. And so other states started doing it too. Now, Pennsylvania, they lent their money into the economy. And in time, because it was created debt, they had problems. And so they had to change their system to the publicly issued money, debt-free, which is what Massachusetts had done. And that worked very well and created tremendous prosperity. Well, the 
people in England didn't like that, and so they made the uh, colonial currencies illegal and started hassling people about using it because they wanted all the resources to be coming over there. They didn't want them being passed around building wealth here. So that little piece of history then was kind of lost after the revolution when Alexander Hamilton was able to convince the Congress to give monetary authority to his friend, William Morris, who owned a bank in New York and one of the first banks chartered by the United States. And so we had privately issued money that the government would borrow. <laughs> and of course, that whole battle, and of course, the government did issue some money as well. And so there was this mixture thing that mostly was private and it caused a lot of problems. But there was a lot of depressions and things that went on after the revolution. And up into the Civil War, the international bankers were wanting to break up the United States. And so they promoted the Civil War through funding the abolitionist movement and things like that. We're hoping to break it up, but Abraham Lincoln had a fella in his cabinet who was pretty sharp and said, well, you know, we can create money. It's in the Constitution. We can create our own money and issue it to pay for our war because the banks were not willing to lend money to Lincoln except for like 22 to 36% interest. Really? <laughs> and Lincoln, he told him no way. So he issued greenbacks instead which is how the war was won. And he said, you know, there's some famous quotes of his out there, like, I have two great enemies, the Southern Army in front of me and the bankers in the rear. Of the two, the one in my rear is my greatest foe. Whoa, I'd never heard that one before. Because he believed that he, he understood, learned from his Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Chase, that the government should create an issue and circulate all the currency. And that way, money would cease to be the master and become the servant of society. So it served very well, but the bankers were very upset about that, issuing greenbacks. And so they spent, from the time Lincoln was shot, until 1913, in a battle with the American people, for the monetary authority to establish permanent monetary authority and created a lot of impressions trying to get greenbacks out of circulation. But the people liked the greenbacks, so it was very hard to do. But in by 1913, of course, remember Coxey's army was a huge protest on Washington, D.C. People marched there. It was the largest protest in the nation's capital to that date which I believe was 1894, he was arrested there. But the central point of their protest was that the government should be issuing greenbacks. They should be issuing the money. And, of course, they weren't issuing the money because Congress and had been bought by the bankers largely. And so it was very difficult to win the day in Congress just as it is today. Gee, what an unusual experience to have the bankers control the Congress. Yeah, not really that unusual because uh, they've done it in Europe for a very long time. They got control of governments in Europe away from the monarchies way back there in the 15, 1600s through war debts because, you know, when a country go to war, they needed a lot of money fast. 
So the bankers would supply them with money. Well, the bankers would supply both sides with money. And that way they could choose who wins. I have to stop you here because there's something that is just not making sense for me. And it's crucial in terms of understanding this dilemma. You said that the governments, the monarchies, would go to the banks to get money to fight their wars. And I'm just not understanding why the governments couldn't just create their own money. They could have, and they did at one time. The ancient Greeks, Lysurgus, made gold and silver illegal as money and issued worthless pieces of iron that had been dipped in vinegar that were used as their circulation medium and created prosperity for 350 years in Greece. And it's because it was issued not as debt. It was issued debt-free as a free exchange medium. And in his case, they issued it to the households because the households were the ones that needed the money they needed to buy stuff. And so in buying stuff, that made the producers get their money and that whole circulation thing would happen. They'd work for that money and have money to buy things. And it just continued to circulate as a permanent medium. Unlike how our system works today where money is loaned and it's loaned at interest. Now, when a loan is created, only the principal is created. You may have noticed that. Only the principal is created, not the money for the interest. So the money to pay the interest on a loan has to come from someone else's principal. And of course, the system crashes if payments on loans exceeds loans being made. And that happens every once in a while. And of course, the bankers saw how that happened and so realized, hey, we could control that. And so you started seeing bubbles be built where there was a great inflation of some kind of value of something like, say, tulips. And then that bubble would burst and all of the collateral that had been used to secure loans then was reaped by the bankers. And so that's how their great wealth was amassed. We just saw in 2008 the largest transfer of wealth in history. And we're going to go into greater depth after I remind our listeners that you are listening to Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I'm speaking with Howard Switzer. He is, among other things, one of the principals behind Earth and Straw Design. He's an eco-architect living in rural Tennessee, and he's a former instructor of alternative and pre-industrial building methods in permaculture at the Eco-Village Training Center at the Farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Since 2009, he's had a special focus on monetary reform, and that's why we have him here today, at least mainly. He was invited to join the American Monetary Institute to raise awareness of the issue, and he currently serves on the founding board of a new organization called the Alliance for Just Money. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. 13-plus years of so many wonderful world-healing guests, all programs free for listening and download, links and further info related to our guests, a place to post comments, and a donate button. This is full-time work, folks, and we count on you, not banks, not government debt, not corporations to make it possible. So send a few shekels or greenbacks or Ben Franklin's our way, but before sending them to us, start with your local community radio station. 
This program is syndicated all around the USA, and I want to do a shout-out in particular to KHOI, where they are doing some fundraising right now or in the next week. Support your local station and continue to make possible the richness of locally controlled music and new alternatives that mainline stations don't and just can't give you. Now back to Howard Switzer, talking mostly about money and monetary policy. And as you head onward, Howard, I'd like your input on one particular aspect of this discussion, and that is the question of how much of what you're sharing is actually controversial. I mean, are there listeners who could be justified in saying, this is just some kind of conspiracy theory? What elements of what you're saying are called into question, denied, or spun differently by banks, the government, or other stakeholders? Would they deny its truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the history is clear. And as Lord Acton said, the issue that has swept down the centuries and which will have to be fought sooner or later is the people versus the banks. And because he could see that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And of course, the absolute power he was referring to was the power to create money. So the history of money is really the history of power. There's a crazy common practice of labeling as fake news any kind of reporting that a politician doesn't like. Does your kind of information sharing get insulted and derided by the moneyed interests like the banks and international financiers who do not want monetary reform? Some of those would be out there calling it conspiracy theory. And of course, conspiracy theory, that term itself was created to get people to not look at the history because the history is full of conspiracy. <laughs> and it is conspiracy today that's going on out there. Conspiracy to make money for the most part, right? But also to control elections and things like that. So there's lots of conspiracy out there. And to say that conspiracy is just theory is really denying history. At the crux of what you're talking about is the fact that almost all money is authorized and created as debt, which then means that as soon as it moves anywhere in the economy, it does so with this added cost of interest, which gets multiplied constantly. That interest, that added cost, has to be squeezed out of someone else's principle, right? Right. Well, the bank's just created by fiat, that is, they've been given that privilege by our government to create money out of thin air, ex nihilo, they call that. But out of nothing, uh, when you go to get a loan, the bank will today on a computer enter that amount that you are wanting to borrow in their computer. When they do that, they've just created the money. That has been being done for a long time. But in course, in 1913, when they got the power to do that, it wasn't too long when we had a major crash because they had built a bubble up on radio stocks and some other stock market things. And then the 1929 crash happened. And so economists world around saw that happen and understood why it happened. And so a bunch of uh, smartest economists of the day came up with a plan they called the Chicago Plan which was to ban banks from issuing money, uh, to make government the sole issuer of our money, and that it would be issued for public purpose, 
and that the Federal Reserve would be nationalized. In other words, there wouldn't be a private central bank. So are you saying that there was no central bank beforehand? That's right. Before 1913, there wasn't. Did the Treasury just issue our money before that? No. The Treasury borrowed money from private banks, commercial banks. And there was usually a particular bank that was selected as the main bank that government borrowed from. And that was a struggle. There was the first national bank and the second national bank, which Andrew Jackson took away its charter, which was good. He stopped the bankers from issuing money, but then he didn't issue government money, thinking that just gold circulating around was going to be enough to run the economy on, and it was not. And we were plunged into a deep depression back then. There's still a piece that is not quite clear to me in your presentation. Just why ever would anyone deal with a privately owned bank paying interest and contributing to the debt economy when you've got a perfectly good government? Why go to a private bank? Well, because that's the only place that money is created. The government doesn't create any money. The government mints the coins, and that's actually the only money they actually create. They mint the coins, which is a currency and they sell it for its full face value. So they make a profit on that, right? It makes it cost about 11 cents a quarter to mint a quarter. So four of them is, you know, 44 cents. So they get 56 cents profit off of that. The government does. That's for us. That's for government use. But of course, that's a very tiny, tiny fraction of the money supply. They also, the Bureau of Printing and Engraving, prints the paper money. But they don't sell that at face value. They sell that at cost of production to the banks. And the banks get the profit on that money when they issue it for cashing checks and various things like that. But all the cash together in the world is only 3% of the money supply. It's a very tiny portion of the money supply. Most of the money, 95 to 97% of the money in the world is electronic. It's a deposit that was created by a bank. And so that's our money system that we have today. And that's why we have so much problem with it. And we have this tremendous concentration of wealth, this tremendous inequity. Wealth distribution is way out of whack from what it should be. And that's because of this system's been going on for so long. I'm not sure I've got the answer to my question. You did say that the government doesn't issue money, the banks issue money. That seems an arbitrary thing, like, why can't the government just issue the money? I think in some countries they do. They just print some money. Isn't that what happens in some countries? Well, they're doing it for profit, and that's why they were so keen on making sure that Congress supported the bankers, that they could have that privilege. The government doesn't create money. It could, in fact, and has in the past. But when the greenback, for instance, was issued, that required a law to do that. And today, Congress could, by law, create money. But they have not been convinced of doing that. Now, Dennis Kucinich, in 2010, had a, a bill that the American Monetary Institute helped him write then it spent three years in legislative legal counsel being studied and adjusted to make sure that it adjusted the law as required to do a public money system. That bill was introduced to Congress, but it never got out of committee. But we have a bill, and you can go read about it and see that bill. It's H.R. 2990. 
the NEED Act, N-E-E-D, NEED Act, the National Emergency Employment Defense Act, it was called, and that was in response to the 2008 transfer of wealth from the people to the bankers. And it was an effort by Dennis to change the system because in the current system, it creates the economy of greed, the economy of death. It's really a very destructive economy. But when you change to a public system where money is first issued for public purpose, in other words, doing infrastructure, healthcare, education, all that kind of stuff. And all that kind of government spending is good for the economy, doesn't create any inflation because it's what people need and use. And so it's just the proper way money should be issued. So that's why American Monetary Institute and the Alliance for Just Money and the International Movement for Monetary Reform, uh, Positive Money in the UK, Monetative in Germany, MOMO in Switzerland, There are organizations all over the world today struggling to get monetary reform to take the power away from the bankers who are just doing it for profit. And instead of economics of greed, we would have an economics of care. I'm sorry, but there's something about the mechanics of this that I am just not getting. And considering that I've got a reasonably high level of education, including, among other things, physics and math, If I'm not getting it, then I imagine there are likely some listeners who are left wondering as well. You talk about the government issuing the bills or printing the bills and then handing them over to the banks. Print the bills, they don't issue them. Yeah. So they have these bills, they hand them over to the banks, charging only the cost of printing them, and then the banks issue them. Why in the world would any government do this? Why would they hand over, let's say, a billion dollars to the bank Tell them that they only have to pay back to the government some tiny fraction, say a million dollars or so, that it costs to print the bills. And then the bank gets to do what it wants with a billion dollars. What it, I mean, it makes no sense. Why would they do this? Help me understand why they would even consider doing this. Sure, sure. Does it make any sense to make war on Iraq when they didn't do anything to us? <laughs> right. <laughs> When they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, there was no justification for it whatsoever. Did that make sense? But it made a lot of sense to the bankers because they made a lot of money off of that. They made trillions off of that. Right. So they had to create a semblance of a need in the case of Iraq, but also with respect to our money in terms of creating and using the Fed for issuing our money. Government is the perfect thing for a private bank to want to have under its control because of tax. And so our income tax, for instance, is for paying the interest on the debt. So it's just a constant flow of money from the people to pay the interest on the debt. And then the government borrows money to spend on what little it does for us. It mostly serves the banking and corporate interests. And, of course, you see the corporations are mostly creatures of banks because uh, you can't hardly have a corporation without credit, a lot of it. You don't do exploration for oil and drilling for oil without a lot of credit. And so all of those companies owe the banks a lot of money. Right. It makes sense to me that if the banks have all this issuing power, that they've got almost everyone in a box. That makes sense to me. That's clear. The step I'm missing is why, in God's name, 
would a government ever even consider handing the power over to the banks? That initial step, why the government would relinquish its power to issue money and just give that right over to the banks who will be using the power just to feed their greed, the rationalization for that step is what I'm missing. Why would they do that? They got them over a barrel at some point and were able to say, well, you'll either crash your economy. Of course, they're still doing it today. They're crashing economies all over the world intentionally to get them back in line, you know, like Venezuela, the Middle East. (laughs) You know, Islam is the only religion left in the world that still bans usury. (laughs) Not that a lot of Arab people don't practice usury. They do. But the religion still bans it. And usury used to be considered as a sin in Judaism and Christianity as well. Yeah, it did. But there was a lot of confusion. And, of course, your big money, I should call it, it's not just banks, because I I hate people to think their local banker is some kind of a problem. Most bankers don't even know they create money. You can prove it to them, though, by going in and (laughs) Tell them, you know, let's see your balance sheet at the beginning of the day and let's look at it at the end of the day after you've made some loans. (laughs) And you can see that that money was great, but most of them don't realize that that's what happened. And so banking business, there's nothing wrong with the banking business itself run properly, but it shouldn't be creating money. It should be lending money that's held on deposit as investment. And that money being lent at interest, that's not a problem. That's the banking business, and that would be okay. But having the power to create money as debt out of nothing, that should be a public power only. Somewhere in this process, there's some big leap of faith that makes no sense, that the money issued by government or by financial institutions, that it means anything. But we have to admit that there's always an act of faith, whether it's in paper bills or a a number in a checking account or in a cowrie shell or a wampum belt or, or that big rock that you mentioned earlier. It's an act of faith to trust any medium of exchange. Of course, there used to be one of the devices to instill faith in our currency in that it was backed by gold or silver. Could you explain what that was about? Well, the people who own the gold of course, would love to have your uh, money be based on gold. But there's not been enough gold in the world for a very long time. Even going back into Europe after looting the Americas and flooding the European economy with gold, which was then largely sold to India because they had the exchange rate there between silver and gold was so different that they could sell gold in India and get a tremendous amount of silver, come back and buy more gold, and then go sell it in India again. But gold has never been a good currency or a good money because it's always been easily controlled by the private interests. Bankers, in fact, the Frugers was a big banking family in Germany, and they owned the gold mine and provided the money for the state at cost, of course. But unless gold is stamped by the government as being worth something more than the commodity of gold, it didn't function as money at all. Because if it was less than what the commodity was, people would just melt it down and sell the bullion. So gold was not a really good method. And there's still people out there that are claiming, oh, gold is how you have to do it. But Andrew Jackson learned that lesson that there's not enough gold in the world to be a exchange medium. 
So I'm, I'm wrestling with this big time. I still don't have my mind wrapped around it. And part of it is maybe that I haven't read the full history of money as you have. Well, I recommend reading The Science of Money. <laughs> and folks, we're going to take the word of Howard Switzer, who is, after all, citing his sources. Please don't. Yeah, don't take my word. Go, go check out the sources. So one of the things I want to get to is how the world would be different if our money were publicly issued instead of privately issued as it is now. On that track, we have just one public bank left in the USA, in North Dakota. I guess that there used to be more. And at one time, we had publicly issued money in the U.S. in terms of the Continental in the very beginning and in the form of greenbacks around the Civil War. If the Continental or the greenbacks had continued, what would be different about our country and economy? We would not have a great disparity of wealth among the people. There would still be wealthier people because there's people who work smarter and harder, but the distribution of wealth would be much flatter than it is currently where it's stacked up on one end <laughs> to a tremendous amount. And so that would mean a tremendous amount of prosperity. I like to point out to people the graph that shows the current distribution of wealth. It looks like a very thin hockey stick with this very tall handle where most of the wealth is. But that lower section, the flat section, is where 80% of the people are, and it's where most of the art and innovation comes from. If you had a distribution of wealth where that 80% had a good portion of it, they would be producing a lot more art and innovation. What explains the extremity of the concentration of wealth as shown by the hockey stick, as you call it? Is it the accumulated and multiplying effect of interest? You've got the money debt owed to you, and you collect that plus interest, which compounds and then deepens your coffers evermore. Is that where the immense wealth disparity comes from? Well, there's interest, and interest today is probably 45% of everything else, everything we buy which was figured out by a German architect who became a student of money as well. And she figured out that interest, well, it would vary somewhat, but interest makes up a good portion of the cost or the price of things that we buy. But it's not just the interest, because as I was explaining earlier, every time a crash happens, and since 1970, there's been 465 of them around the world. And every time a crash happens, those banks reap the collateral, which is the real wealth, which is land and buildings and stuff. They repossess your car, your house, your business, etc. Which then gets resold, but they get the wealth from it. And so that has really, for instance, in just 2008, we had this massive transfer of wealth to that top 1%. So we've got to really do something about it. And that would require government action. That would require us winning a government that serves us instead of a government that serves them. You mentioned uh, one of the other experts involved in this monetary reform work is an architect, and that's been your work also for multiple decades. Why are the architects at the front of this reform movement, and where are the economists who should be leading the charge? Well, economists aren't trained in money. They aren't taught about money. 
Most economists don't know how money was created. They are involved in imaginary scenarios, unlike lawyers. Now, lawyers, they deal in facts. They deal in the fact of the matter. And so lawyers are often interested in monetary reform, if they are publicly minded, that is. And so I think anybody, because the people that I associate with I'm the only architect in the group. There's mechanical engineers. There are people who run co-ops, you know, electric cooperative managers, directors. There's different businessmen and academics. So it's a whole lot of different kinds of people who come to realize that there's something about the money that they should learn about. American Monetary Institute has a conference every year which uh, I highly recommend to anybody. If you want to learn about money, go to one of those conferences. You'll be meeting with monetary reformers from all over the place, from all around the world, talking about the changes that need to be made. And you asked a question earlier, Mark, about what it would be like with this change. And I would say, well, first of all, your health care wouldn't be expensive. Your education would be free. Your infrastructure would be the latest and greatest technology because government would be able to afford to do it. And the only limit when government spends and creates the money, the only limit they have, because cost suddenly no longer is a matter of money. It's only a matter of resources. If you have the resources, the labor and materials and skills and knowledge to do something, then you could do it because they could just create the money to do it. And that's the only limitation to what money would be under a public money system. The limitation now is squeezing us for our wealth. The one example we have in the U.S. that is at all in the direction of what you're advocating for is the Public Bank of North Dakota. Why is it there and why isn't it anywhere else? And what has it done over the history of its existence in North Dakota? Right. There's a lot of people talking about public banks today, but very difficult to capitalize a bank, even for uh, state governments are pretty strapped for cash already, for capital already. So, you know, capitalizing a bank would be a big deal. But back 125 years ago, when not 125, but 100, 100 years, a little over 100 years, the Farmers Alliance was part of a movement to get public money. And, of course, they lost in 1913 when the private bankers won their Fed. So they went about setting up a bank in 1917, set up the North Dakota Bank. Now, the North Dakota Bank doesn't operate like most banks. It doesn't create money. It only lends out what it has on deposit. And it has a lot on deposit because people pay taxes to the state. People pay, you know, the fees and whatever to the state. And so then that money is spent back into the economy for the things that people need. And a lot of times it's used to back up other bank loans to bring the interest rates down. So it's not a, it's not a bank that a typical person can go in and get a loan from. But it is a, a government bank, a public bank that helps their economy help stabilize their economy. We could easily spend much, much, much more time talking about monetary reform, not to mention your experience and work as an eco-architect, your time with the farm, an amazing experiment in intentional community, and much more that you've been involved in. And I do hope to do that on a future program. 
But what I think we need to conclude with is some idea of what is being done and needs to be done to move monetary reform forward by individuals or organizations like the Alliance for Just Money or the American Monetary Institute, both of which you've been involved with. I'll have links to them on my site. So what would listeners be doing if they connected up with those groups or wanted to further the mission of monetary reform? At this point, it's reach one, teach one. And we really need to spread this information. Back in the uh, late 19th century, the Farmers Alliance and uh, Progressive Party and things, they used to have like uh, revivals where they had traveling Chautauquas that would teach about banking and government and the political issues and all of that kind of stuff. We kind of need the American people to come to realize what the real problem with the economy is. We talk a lot about problems in the economy, and we are also often talking about fiscal policy, but people don't know about monetary policy, and they don't know where the money comes from. I think once the awareness is raised to the level where government can be forced by the sheer numbers of people who support it, and of course, even bankers, once they realize how much benefit it would benefit them as well, I'm talking about the lesser bankers, not talking about the super wealthy out there, that it's a tremendous benefit for banks, too. It makes them more competitive for them. It would be a, a boon for the economy in general. So what I think you're saying is that these organizations are primarily addressing the need to educate more and more people. Yes, we're focusing on education, and that's education at all different levels. Now, a lot of the people who come to the American Monetary Institute some of them are economists who want to learn about money. For instance, Michael Kumar from the World Bank came to the Institute for four years in a row, read The Lost Science of Money four years in a row, and after that wrote the Chicago Plan Revisited, which is a paper that has gotten a lot of read amongst economists and policymakers to learn about what the Chicago Plan was about and how it would serve us today. So folks, check out both the Alliance for Just Money and the American Monetary Institute, both organizations my guest Howard Switzer has worked with. Get involved and learn so that we can perhaps turn our policy around so that we could turn that wealth distribution from a ridiculous hockey stick into a proper curve. And we can move our economy toward the well-being of the people, the commonwealth, instead of only serving the narrow interests of a moneyed few. And Howard, thank you for working for that world, environmentally, humanly, financially, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It was my pleasure. I'm not feeling a tremendous faith in our money or banking system at this point, so we'll leave our visit with Howard Switzer by sharing at least part of the song that Pete Seeger shared with the world on that theme. It's called Banks of Marble, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Pete Seeger and Banks of Marble. I've traveled around this country from shore to shining shore It really made me wonder The things I heard and saw I saw the weary farmer A-plowing sod and loam I heard the 
auction hammer Just a-knocking down his home But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the farmer sweated for I've seen the seamen standing Idly by the shore And I heard their bosses saying Got no work for you no more But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the seamen sweated for I've seen the weary miner Rubbing coal dust from his back And I've heard his children crying Got no coal to heat the shack But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the vaults are stuffed with silver That the miner sweated for I've seen my brothers working Throughout this mighty land I've prayed we'd get together And together make a stand Then we might own those banks of marble With a guard at every door And we would share those vaults of silver That we had sweated for The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.